to Genesis chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 19. And as I, I want to just remind you that we are going to be still walking day by day through Genesis. And we're going to pick up the pace, I promise, as we get to subsequent chapters. But Genesis, these first three chapters of Genesis are absolutely foundational to our faith. Foundational to how we understand the world that we live in and who God is as he's revealed himself in Scripture. Moses, though, has a particular objective in mind in writing this text. He's not just trying to satisfy our curiosities about the universe. Really, there's no spare word in the Bible that is just meant to satisfy our own intellectual curiosities about how things work. Everything in Scripture has a purpose. And Moses is writing to people who suffer from the same thing everyone suffers from, as laid out in Romans chapter 1, which is being prone to worship the creature rather than the creator. Here, Moses is writing to maybe the most strongest sense that we have in this entire account of how Moses is framing the creation narrative as being against the gods of the peoples around him. Dismantling the worldview of those neighbors who don't believe that there's only one true and living God. God is entering into history as the eternal one, as the one who had a plan from eternity that he's working out. And we're going to see as we read this just what God determines to use and just the pattern that he's using and creating what he's using it to teach his people. With that in mind, let's read, starting in verse 14. This is the fourth day of creation. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs, or let them be four signs, and four seasons, and four days, and four years. And let them be lights in the expanse to give lights upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. It's so easy for us to want to jump immediately to application to our scenario when we read really any biblical text. But Moses here was writing to a people who had been saved out of Egypt. And when Moses came to confront Pharaoh, he confronted not just a man, an earthly ruler, who could have killed him. But part of the boldness of that whole situation, that confrontation that Moses had with Pharaoh, 
is he was coming against the gods, the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians believed the Pharaoh to be the son of the sun god, Ra. And when Moses comes up to ask for the people, rather, to ask for Pharaoh to release the Israelites, this is how Pharaoh responds to him. Exodus 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then we have the whole series throughout the Exodus uh, narrative from chapters 1 to really chapter 19. We see how God proves that the Egyptian gods are really not things to be afraid of. That part of why Moses could stand before someone who called himself a god is Moses knew who the true God was and knew that all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And really, we're kind of confronted with the same situation today. When we go out to the world to ask people to follow the living and true God, we're going to people who either believe in different gods or don't believe in any God at all. They believe that we might worship a God of the gaps, a pre-modern people who didn't understand science, and we're just a relic in that sense. What we're doing in our task of evangelizing the nations is in part telling them to submit their intellectual and everything else about themselves, the way they think about the world and conceive of it, to the authority of Scripture, specifically to Christ who came and revealed who God is. But we are revealing, or who is revealed in Scripture, is the same God. And it's the same God that people have always rejected. And what we're doing always is we are presenting our worldview against all the different alternatives. How, do you, how would you answer the question of how you know that Jesus truly is the only way? That Christianity is the right religion that depicts the right God and the right path to salvation. Because there's lots of competition. And maybe the biggest competition that Christians face in the United States is those who deny that there's any God at all. Well, how does Moses address that? How does Moses confront the gods of the people and undermine them to show that there is only one true God? Well, this text, we, maybe one thing that did not appear striking to you is that verse 16, that center verse. I'm not going to get into it too much, but you can see in your outline that the structure of this text follows a little bit of a different pattern. The centerpiece of this text is verse 16, in which God makes two great lights, a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And what's really interesting is as we 
approach this text, this is the first time that God doesn't name something. God has already named the day in verse 5. He named the night in verse 5. He named the sky in verse 8. He named the dry land earth in verse 10. The seas in verse 10. And then when he gets to the sun, moon, and stars, he doesn't provide a name. In the Hebrew language, there's a word for the sun. It's shemesh. There's a word that's for the moon, the lesser light. Yarek, or Yareha, really, yes. But, you know, you guys all know Hebrew, so you'll correct me later. <laughs> God even then waits in chapter 2, verse 19. He gives Adam the text, or gives him the responsibility of naming all the living creatures. And even the stars were told in the psalm, Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. It says, he determines their numbers. And gives to all of them their name. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 25. Talks about how, who can we compare God to? Lift up your eyes and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number. Calling them all by name. What he's doing here, and all this, God knows, has actually names for these objects in Scripture. What he's doing, he's undermining the highest gods of the Egyptians, the highest gods of the people, and showing them to be what they truly are, which is mere objects. They're not things, in the words of R.C. Sproul, if you say not things close enough, you get nothing. The gods of the people's are worthless idols. The method here that Moses is using, and the Holy Spirit using Moses, is he gets them to think about reality as it truly is. He shows in his revelation what the real world actually is. It's all God's creatures. And while there might be alternative worldviews, Either they're reflective of reality or they're not. They either mirror the design of God's creation or it's just a skeptical idea that's proven wrong eventually. It's at this point I think it's really important that as we see that these are not gods at all but they're mere objects, that's something that we now know. Through astronomy. That we can look out through telescopes and we can see the objects, the sun, moon, and stars for what they really are. They're not gods. Even though from our perspective, it might seem like the sun's the thing that gives us light. Or from an evolutionary worldview, that's the fact that we have water on our planet. It's the conditions that make life spontaneously arise. And the combination from the energy of the sun... What we have here is depiction of reality. What God does is he clarifies the world that we live in. That's the mechanism. That's the means of how he undermines the gods of the people. Calvin points out that this text 
And it was interesting to learn that in the 1500s, he dealt with different um, understandings of astronomy that were actually very accurate. He reasoned, he saw that there was astronomers that reasoned, you know, this text calls the sun the greater light and the moon the lesser light, when we know in actuality the stars that are out in the universe are bigger. That, and this is in the 1500s, knowing that the star Saturn, which is a planet really, that the reason why it looks so small is because it's greater distance, that it appears less than the moon. But in actuality, it is not. What's going on here? Well, we're dealing with something that we've mentioned time and time again, and I think we need to keep mentioning. That we are being presented not as scientifically analytic text to help satisfy our curiosities of the universe, but it's written to the normal person who, when they stand on the earth, they look up at the, the sun, moon, and stars. That God says, I put those there. Not any other God. He points out that here Moses does not subtly teach us the technicalities of the universe. Moses wrote in a popular style, without, uh, which without instruction, all ordinary persons endued with common sense are able to understand. And he says, but the astronomers investigate with great labor what and it says the, he said the sagacity, or that what our human minds can comprehend. When we see that evolution and the posited history of those events do not align with Scripture, unfortunately, a lot of Christians at that point want to just disdain all science and say none of it's useful. And maybe even go as far as to say we cannot trust any scientist in that we, don't, we reject evolution and we reject that there's a globe and that the earth is actually flat. Dear Christian, not everything we receive from science is wrong just because it comes from a scientist. Or even if it comes from an unbeliever. As a Christian, we do need to be realized that saying we don't believe in evolution makes us seem just as crazy and dumb and cult-like as saying we believe the earth is flat in the eyes of the world. But as the Christian, we need to distinguish between the different answers to different questions that we are seeking to answer in the realm of science. And realize that we can go into science, into empirical study observation of the mechanisms of the universe without fear that they're going to undermine our faith because God is the one who designed it. And as far as we have an accurate understanding of the universe God made, we're going to actually be doing something beautiful, something worthwhile, which is we're going to be seeing and thinking God's thoughts after him. We'll see that again next week, so we don't really need to get too, too far in it. So this is what the gods of the Egyptians actually are. The highest deities that they worship are just simply two great lights. And just by the way, lights there is a word that's translated often as lamps. God set up lampstands 
He doesn't even bother to name them here because they're just things that do not deserve anyone's worship. That's what Deuteronomy 4, 19 says. It says, when you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, and all the stars in the sky, do not be led astray to bow down and worship to them and serve them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. If we're not to worship them because they're mere creatures, we need to see that these creatures are not created to be served, but to serve. And that's our second point here, that they are created merely to serve. And this outline starts at the center. And if you notice, I have verses 15 and 17, then verses 14, 14b, uh, 14b and 18a, and 14a, and then 14b. This is called a chiastic structure where the centerpiece is the most important, but then you have a parallel that we have, verse 15, to give light upon the earth, and verse 17, he sets it in the sky to do what? To give light on the earth. Verse 14b, that they're set for signs, for seasons, for days, for years, and then verse 18a, to rule over day and night. And then lastly, that third, or what will be our fourth point, that God created them to separate day from night. And how does the passage end? To separate day from night. This is a structure that shows we know what Moses is intending for us to grasp and to get from. And in verse 15 and 17, we have this repeated refrain to show that these created things in far-off galaxies are for the purpose to serve the creation, the earth, and all that fills it for all the peoples. Isn't that astounding? That when you look through the telescope and you see galaxies beyond number, beyond our comprehension, and seeing that they're all there to serve God's purposes, that God created them after he created the earth to give lights as lamps to the earth for those purposes. John Kepler, the founder of astronomy, or rather modern astronomy, observed that the undevout astronomer is mad, crazy. And if you think about the nature of our universe and you study astronomy, you notice things that the earth is at a precise 23 degree slant that as it rotates gives us all of our seasons and that the minutest deviation off of that would render life uninhabit or rather earth uninhabitable that's the precise mass and the precise distance of the moon from our planet that allows for tides to come in and come out regularly without either them drawing all the way up or without them, the, the tides coming all the way in and covering the entire planet. Isaac Newton, seeing this, said, this is the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets that could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent 
and powerful being. See, when we look at the universe, it's not just that intelligence is marked on DNA for life. Information and intelligence marks the entire created universe. And the galaxies that are marked by that intelligence are meant to serve us. They're created to serve. And in in the third point, we see how they serve. They serve by ruling over the day and over the night, verse 18a. Or as it's put in verse 14, the second half, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Humanity's not created to worship creatures, created things. All creatures are made to serve. And these creatures are meant to serve humanity. That's our third point. They are servants of humanity. What's the point in saying that they are for signs, for seasons, for days, for years? All these things are put in the sky to tell time. That's the basic idea behind all this. How do you know how long a day is? Well, it's counted on a solar basis. It's how, it's how long does it take, 24 hours, for the earth to spin completely? How do we know months, seasons? Well, we can look at the moon and see the different phases of the moon. And interestingly, earlier this year, I was in Cancun, Mexico, and it was a wonderful trip. And we visited this site that's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's uh, Chichen Itza. And it's a temple located just in the middle of the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. And, you know, there's lots of temples all over the world. But what makes this temple different that the Mayans constructed, I think around the year 1000 AD is their best estimate, is that this entire temple that's located in the middle of the jungle is a humongous calendar. It's the world's largest man-made calendar. It has four sides, each with 91 steps, with the final step being the top. 91 times 4, 364, plus that one final step, 365. There are as many steps on the different corners of other steps locating the different phases of the moon. It's in one building is a complete solar calendar and lunar calendar with those four sides breaking up the year into fourths. It's meant to break up the four different seasons. The different seasons that we go through. Summer, fall, winter, spring. And it even, they were able to calculate so precisely at the top that they could move up the steps, create a structure that would have a little slit of a window And they knew the exact day of the uh, spring equinox and the fall equinox. So that the sun would shine at a very particular time of day, a shadow of a snake that then slithers up to the top of the temple. It is absolutely incredible. And we might think to ourselves, how did they map that out? It's because they knew how to tell time. And 
Well, the light pollution, I've been told that the light pollution from Walmart has really dimmed our ability to see the stars in the sky. But if you were to look at, a near, uh, at a, the night sky and keep track of it, you notice the movement of the bodies, the movement of the planets. Keep track of years, keep track of seasons. And if you observe it close enough, you can come with amazing results. It's absolutely phenomenal. It blows my mind what people can do when they study nature. We're seeing God and how he constructed the universe that we can tell days, weeks, months, years, plan ahead for harvest, plan ahead for winter. This is God's good service to not just, human, not just us, but it's good for all creation. This natural law which God crafted the universe is relevant to every human being, in service to every human being, knowable to the believer and unbeliever alike. And yet, it's amazing that the same intelligence that used to the crafting of this temple demonstrating such astute learning and education and intelligence without any connection to any Western culture, that that same site was the site of ritual sacrifices of the infirm, of the deficient in any way, mentally or physically, of young women, brutally sacrificed, beheaded, hearts pulled out and everything. That the same people who can use their intelligence in one way to know God and know his creation use their intelligence another way to serve, as we said last week, the doctrine of demons. To do the unimaginable. Both come from the same human heart. That should be humbling for us. In our humility... We should be able to say, God created the universe to be knowable. And we can go out into the world unafraid by observation of nature and understand it's going to confirm God's word. But it needs to humble us to make sure that we never depart from God's word. We need to seek in our worldview that both books are in harmony. Our understanding of nature and our understanding of scripture, the two books that God wrote, and to realize... That when they come into conflict, ironically, the world wants the book of nature to trump over the book of scripture. But as a Christian, we need to know and need to be humble enough to say that where the two seemingly contradict, that we're going to humbly submit to God's word and what it says. And the test of time will prove out all of God's word to be true. And finally, Moses shows us, and we've already seen this a little bit, in just calling the great lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, not even giving them a name and just calling them lamps. They're non-essential employees of sorts. When did God create the light? God created the light on day one. The light already existed. There's a certain sense, sense in which Light as a material force in the universe existed before the sun, moon, and stars and existed without them. 
They are mere creatures. What God is doing here, then, is just delegating a task for them. In his construction of the universe, moving beyond just the shining the light of his glory, as we said in the first sermon in this series, and I posted online if you want to see that again, that what we see is God's glory shining forth, a glory that is physical and tangible, just like the glory of Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, shining forth his divine glory. Here, rather, we are just supplied, they're delegated a task, a mechanism that God did not need them for. Why is Moses showing us that light, its ultimate source, is not from the sun? That day does not originate, nor night originate from these beings? To show them that God doesn't need his creation. He can do it without them. That's God's purpose in showing us. God does not need these things. To him, they're unessential. And once again, this should humble us, shouldn't it? We tend to elevate ourselves to being necessary for God's plan and God's purposes. We ask ourselves, how will the world be saved if I don't dedicate my life to X effort or Y effort? Dear Christian, we need to see ourselves as instruments in God's hands to accomplish his purposes in the world, that we proceed when we do things like open our mouth and share the gospel with an unbeliever. We have the privilege of being God's instruments. God doesn't need us, though. And God does not need them. I couldn't get my mind off of the analogy of a non-essential employee, but this is, there's a way in which these are not non-essential employees. And part of it is, the way that we just said, which is they function beautifully according to the design God has for them in the universe. But it's important to realize that the non-essential part is God needing them or God really needing any of his creatures to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But they are essential in the sense of them fulfilling the task that God delegated to them faithfully. Isn't it amazing that God has faced time to work consistently from our perspective? That we can depend upon the universe, universality of the laws from today to tomorrow that God has established? You know, it's amazing that God's creatures here, the light, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they serve God faithfully, and they serve us faithfully without failure. We need to ask ourselves, are we functioning according to our design? Are we functioning faithfully in the task that God has given to us? You know, the sun, moon, and stars are not the only lights that scripture mentions. God calls Abraham to look at the stars of heaven to see that God was going to bless him with as many stars as he saw above. And that image of the people of God being a light in the world is one that carries throughout Scripture. Maybe most beautifully in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, when he calls the people of God that you are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill 
cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. And it's referring to not his physical glory shining out, but his character is one of light. And as being created in the image of God, we are to be God's light in the world. And this continues after the fall. We are to be lights. Lights expose. Lights expose sin and expose darkness. Light warms. It comforts. It gives nourishment to. Light guides. Light directs. But maybe most importantly for the Christian, unless we feel this weight of a responsibility on us too heavy, is to realize that lights are also signs. We are to be signs. Signs that point us away from ourselves and point us to Christ, who is the light of the world. We point people, we realize that we are to be lights in the world, that we are to do good works and let that light shine out, as Matthew chapter 5 tells us. But we don't do it in our own strength. We don't do it in our own power. And ultimately, our light, just like the moon, is a reflection off the sun. Ours is a lesser light, pointing to the greater light of Jesus Christ, who is the only hope for humanity, who is the firm foundation for all of our exposing the sins of this world, of all the guiding and all the directing and all the pointing. Have you seen the light of Christ? Have you beheld the glory, the glory of the only true Son who came into a dark world of sin, paid for all of our guilt, accomplished our salvation. Have you seen that light? If you want to see that light, you know, the scriptures tell us that we go to God in prayer. We ask for him to enable us to see the light of Christ, to enlighten our minds. And God answers that prayer. He enables us with the eyes of faith to see his glory, the glory of the only true and living God. The God who created reality and teaches truth that is consistent with reality. And part of that reality is the reality of our sin and our need for salvation. And we are to seek as lesser lights to point people to that greater light who can save sinners. Let us pray. Dear gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have shown us Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that when we look at our own light and the light that we're called to be, reflecting the glory of God, reflecting the imagery of God, we see that our light is dim. We see that we, in our sin, cannot trust in ourselves because our light is not lightness at all compared to the lightness of our God. 
Lord, we look to Christ and to him alone for our guidance, for our direction, for our warmth and comfort, for our illumination of even how we understand the world. We look to Christ and him alone, and we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts every day to see the glory of Christ, to see how much we need him. And we pray for those in this room who have not had their eyes open yet, that you would shine the light of your gospel into their hearts to grant them salvation that's found in Christ alone. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.